Guardian Unlimited. Assalamualaikum and welcome to Islamophonic, a podcast about the world's favorite religion from the world's favorite newspaper. I'm Riaz Atbat and this week, to quote Canadian balladeers Celine Dion and Brian Adams, let's talk about love. Here in the studio is Lukman Ali from the Khyal Theatre Company. He's a man of many hats and today he's wearing his love hat because he's a marriage guidance counsellor and a scholar. He'll be talking us through the various trials and tribulations of finding the right partner and what you can and can't do once you've got them. Assalamu alaikum, Lukman. Wa alaikum salam, Riyazat, and thank you for having me. It's no problem at all. It kind of escaped your attention or mine that it's Valentine's Day, although clearly nobody will be celebrating it because it's nothing to do with Islam and everything to do with meaningless commercial exploitation. You can tell I'm single, can't you? But there are people who are luckier, like this lady who's found her soulmate. I asked her what she'd be doing tonight. I actually don't have any plans. My fiancé has said that we are not allowed to celebrate Valentine's Day. <laughs> it's not a Muslim thing. He calls it a paganistic holiday. So I'll be staying at home. You're obviously engaged, but before you became engaged, were you dating? Well, yeah, dating, I had a steady boyfriend for about six months, and then I met my fiancé. We've been sort of seen each other for about three and a half years and we did in the past celebrate Valentine's Day but I think it was more on my behalf I wanted to but now I'm sort of seeing his point of view and we've decided we're not going to celebrate it. When it comes to getting married how important is it to know the person you're marrying I mean I don't know about your parents but my parents didn't know each other at all when they got married do you think attitudes are changing among the younger generation that it's all right to actually spend time with someone as long as you're not doing anything unlawful and you truly intend to marry them. That is probably the main opinion that a lot of young Muslims do have these days. And I think our parents are probably coming around to that idea as well. So what's your idea of a perfect romantic moment? I know you're not allowed to celebrate Valentine's Day, but what does it for you in terms of the romance? I actually just like... We've only started doing it recently because he's allowed to come around to my house. But just sitting at home and just spending time with, um, with him, probably just sitting in front of the TV, making dinner and actually having my family around. She has no qualms about what she's doing. But is she right? Can you date someone before you marry them? Let's find out in a super cuddly fatwa focus. Am I allowed to be alone with my fiancé? I want to marry a Muslim, but my parents don't approve of my choice. Is it more important to marry or listen to my parents? What does the Quran say about forced marriages? What are the permissible ways to meet a spouse? So, those were the questions, and here we have some answers from Mulana Muhammad Shahid Raza from the Muslim College in Ealing. A Muslim woman is generally not allowed to be alone with her fiancé, the laws of hijab and segregation of sexes have been extensively outlined in the Quran and in Hadith. These guidelines are very clear. Fiancés are considered as strangers and they are treated in Sharia law as strangers. Number two, there are several ways to meet someone through family, functions, 
friends' recommendations or marriage bureau. Number three, forced marriages are not recognized in Islam because Islam does not approve of forced actions. For example, Islam disapproves of even forced conversion to the faith. So if forced conversion to Islam is not recognized or sanctioned, how can Islam sanction forced marriages? And number four, it is difficult to give a general opinion on whether it is more important to marry or to please your parents. Primarily, in Islam, marriage isn't just a relationship between two individuals. It's an institution through which two families become related. Therefore, ideally, involvement of families from both sides is highly desirable. But there may be instances where a marriage may go ahead without the approval of the parents, but this would only be in exceptional cases. The reasons for parental disapproval can be different and diverse, so any judgment needs to be based on individual circumstances. Jazakallah to Molana Raza from the Muslim College in Ealing. So, Lukman, what do you think about all of those things that you've just heard? Well, I think there's a lot of a lot mentioned <laughs> packed in there. Uh, you know, the issue of forced marriage, uh, without doubt, in Islam, forced marriage is something which is not permissible. It's, it's, it's unlawful. Uh, in fact, according to most uh, schools of law in Islam, if a marriage is pronounced by compulsion, the marriage is automatically invalid. So uh, that throws into question a lot of marriages which perhaps were or as a result of compulsion and force. Well, I was going to ask you, what's the difference between forced marriages, as it's understood by the Home Office, for example, Mm. and someone who has a lot of pressure put on them by parents? Mm. Well, in Islam, a a marriage has to be completely at the volition of Of the the two people involved. involved. So any undue coercion, pressure, which results in somebody complying and conforming with someone else's desires will always be questionable in Islam. On the matter of dating and the matter of how one courts and how yes. one... There's not a, a unanimous point of view in Islam. According to some jurists, to be alone with someone who's not married is completely unacceptable. Okay. And therefore, you should, one should have a chaperone. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two people should have some sort of chaperone. Yeah. Or they should this be... This girl was saying that, you know, she spent time with her fiancé in her family. So yes. that's okay. Yes. Yeah? Yes. But then there are other, there are other more lenient points of view mm-hmm. in Islamic jurisprudence where it says that provided the two people, you know, they're not anxious about something illicit taking place. Okay. Their, 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 their trust in one another and their trust in their own sense of virtue will safeguard them, then, you know, even the situation of being alone is not, it's not a problem. You know, it's important to understand that in Islam there's a lot of latitude yeah. where you can find on one side of the spectrum quite a lenient approach mm-hmm. on the other height, and on the other side quite a stringent. Do you think if a Muslim has a true intention, mm-hmm. then that should safeguard them from temptation or doing something that's unlawful? Yes, that's true. And I think this is where in Islam, on one end of the spectrum of scholars would tend to be quite lenient. There's a lot of personal accountability there. There's a lot of personal responsibility. Mm. There's a lot of expectation from the individual that they be, will behave correctly, they behave correctly okay. and be aware of their state and their consciousness. Am I right in thinking that it is a religious obligation to marry? It can be a religious obligation. Marriage is generally talked of in the terms of being sunnah, mm. of being a recommended practice right. by the Prophet. Now, marriage can become obligatory as a result of a person finding themselves in a situation that if they did not marry, then they would find themselves perpetually in a state of temptation and maybe even fall into vice, if you like. At that point, marriage will switch from being something recommended, recommended to, being to being obligatory. Okay. 
Well, they say marry in haste and repent in leisure, but for the time-strapped Muslim, there is a fast way to meet your mate. I met up with Pali Banwait, who runs regular Asian speed dating events around the country, and I went along to one in Soho. There's equal numbers of guys and girls. The girls basically sit at the tables and the guys sit opposite the ladies for three minutes when a gong sounds and then they get up and they have to move across to the adjacent table. Anyone that they feel as though they like, they mark them down on their matchmaking card and they get submitted to us and given to us at the end, which we process and within 24 to 48 hours, people get emailed their results about who their matches were and then they're left to contact each other. My experience has been a good experience because I believe that there's all the same people in the same boat. You don't feel as if you're the only one who's facing the issue of getting married or getting to know somebody. It's just a really good opportunity to meet a large volume of men of the same religion in one go. You've got a good opportunity, whereas every day it's very hard to sort of come across somebody. And also, you know, I find it hard just to sort of go up to somebody and approach them and start a conversation. Now you run speed dating events for Hindus, Sikhs and Muslims. What would you say are the differences between the Muslim events and Hindu and Sikh events? They are a lot more eager to meet someone and use the event for its practical purpose rather than just as a fun night out. They are here to actually meet the right person. I do think that the girls do tend to take it more seriously than the guys, which maybe needs to be a bit clarified. Maybe both sexes need to know where they stand beforehand. Otherwise, it can get a bit heartbreaking or they might think, I'm looking for marriage and, oops, sorry, I'm not looking for marriage just yet. So even though dating in Islam is forbidden and you're not really supposed to socialise with the opposite sex, do you think it's becoming more common, not necessarily accepted, do you think it's becoming more common for Muslims to start befriending members of the opposite sex to date them. Yeah, I do think so, definitely. I would say that they are willing to date and get to know one another beforehand. I think they've realised that it's not easy anymore, as it would have been, say, five, ten years ago. And you do definitely need to know some sort of background knowledge feel comfortable with the person that you want to spend the rest of your life with now. I think people would prefer to date somebody beforehand just to get to know them, get to know what they like, and see if they've got the same interest as well. Whereas, you know, going back many moons ago with arranged marriages again, it was you didn't really get the opportunity. But I think nowadays, people that's what they would prefer to do just to get to really know somebody before they make that big commitment of marriage. I do think that people don't mind as much, parents don't mind as much. You sort of get a chance to meet somebody, get to know them, take your time rather than okay well you know this guy in a couple of months you know we'll do the engagement and a couple of months later get married at least this time you, know, you have a bit of time to get to know one another. So after your Muslim men and women have done speed dating, what are they telling you afterwards? What kind of feedback do you get about these events? People say they have a really great time and once they get through that initial barrier of shyness, they find it really enjoyable and I think they feel comfortable because it's controlled. It's not the same as you're not forced to have to go to a bar and talk to people. So, you know, we're, we're, doing, we're doing our job, I hope. Still with me is Lukman Ali, a marriage guidance counsellor and scholar. So, Lukman, is speed dating OK? I personally have a problem with these types of tactics. <laughs> people, Make it sound people, like they, a military operation. Yeah, the, you know, these sort of devices that people use. I mean, there are no rules, fast rules as to how people are going to meet each other, mm. you know, and how those marriages or those relationships are going to turn out. Mm. But in Islam, because marriage is as much a spiritual affair as mm. much as it's a, you know... A love affair. It's a spiritual love affair. Okay. As well as, well as a <laughs> physical both. material. It's both, right? Yeah. 
So you want to have some sort of spiritual element in bringing about these pairings, because if not, then you're going to start off on a very superficial footing. But I know people who have met doing speed dating, and I yeah. think you know nowadays because we no longer have communities of purpose. You see, marriage tradition in Islam was mm. something which communities proactively took part in and brokered, not in a forced way, mm. but in a way of recognizing the characteristics of different people yeah. and finding compatibilities and, and you know and complementarities. Mm. Some events are very very structured. I mean, just tell me what you think about this. You have to send your CV in. Mm. There's a telephone interview. You have mm. to go through a psychometric test. Mm. And then the people at the marriage bureau do all the hard work for you mm. by pairing you up with someone who has a similar religious background, cultural upbringing, and sort of, you know, employment achievement record as you. Yeah. And then you do get to meet them, but it's not really speed dating because it's not for you to meet people or mm. to extend your social mm. circle. It's mm. for you to actually meet a spouse. But it doesn't sound like it's much fun. That sounds like a very uh, complex corporate. It's like a, yeah, it's a very corporate way of <laughs> meeting your husband. Way of or doing wife. it, yeah. but, like, but like I said, I mean, in the absence of communities of purpose, with the absence of mosques, mm. which play a role of catering to the problems that young people have of finding spouses, and they don't really play a role, which is no, they unfortunate. Don't. So people are going to seek and find all sorts of other means of, of bringing bring about arenas where yeah. they can meet each other. It's down to the attention of the people. What advice have you got for me? What advice I have for you? My mum well, feels that I'm not bothered about getting married. Right. I think my dad is. That true? Has, um. Oh, I would like to get married, but I want to marry somebody I want to marry. I, I don't think I should marry for the sake of getting married. But, I don't think but, that's going to work for anybody. I would suspect that one of the issues why you find it difficult is there aren't opportunities to come into contact with compatible. Muslims? Yeah. No, there aren't. Really. You, you, you go, you're at home and you come to work and you go back home. And you well, go I mean, and you... in my line of work, I meet lots of people. I very yeah. rarely meet Muslims unless they're kind of terror suspects, which right, isn't right, really, right, right. Which well, isn't exactly. really great. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> These are symptoms yeah. of the natural way of life in Islam, and not just Islam, it's not exclusive Islam, was communities. Yeah. But we live very atomized lives where they're very disjointed with a lot of dispersion, we don't often get to meet with people of common purpose and common aspirations. Yeah. So what do we expect? We're going to have the situation where perhaps the most compatible person for you is like thousands of miles away. And yeah. You have to meet them through the internet or something. Wow. Well, the internet throws up a whole load of other questions, but unfortunately we don't have time to explore internet marriage and internet dating. Um, thank you very much. Jazakallah for your time. Pleasure. Thank you. Now we're going to hear from our man in Tehran, Robert Tate, who's got a press digest from Iran. Robert, can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Now, there's plenty of stuff going on in our foreign pages about what's going on in Tehran. What are they saying over there? Well, the tone in the Iranian newspapers, certainly regarding the nuclear issue, is surprisingly restrained. I think there's been a deliberate attempt to try and take the emotion out of the issue and to stress that Iran is behaving reasonably and wants a deal and is placing all its emphasis on the possibility of a negotiated settlement. The emphasis now is on a much more downbeat, cool, rational approach. So the editorial opinion coming out of Tehran is calm and considered, which I expect some people would find surprising. Do you have any more tales of the unexpected? Well, Iran is always rich in those. One that's particularly eye-catching this morning is concerning the, the former pro-reform president of Iran, Mohammad Khatami. Now, his offices in central Tehran and Argentine Square have been burgled in very weird shades of Watergate. Over the 
weekend, someone has broken into his office and they basically trashed the place. The workers were in on Monday morning, yesterday, and the documents strewn everywhere. They also uh, were missing several computers and telephone handsets, audio-visual equipment. I understand that there have been some other goings-on at the weekend as well. Well, there was an extraordinary story coinciding with um, President Ahmadinejad's speech to mark the 28th anniversary of the Iranian Revolution. And their speech was given at the Square. Now, the Square is distinguished by a very large monument called Adelie Monument. How big um, is the monument, Robert? I couldn't give you a precise dimension of it, but it's very, very tall, and I wouldn't like to get to the top of it myself. However, one very courageous gentleman did try to get to the top, and he started climbing during Mr. Ahmadinejad's speech. And he was climbing, apparently, without the aid of a rope, and he got to the very close to the top of the, the monument when he fell. He didn't die immediately from the effects of his fall, and they took him to hospital, but he died on the way. And it's unclear what this gentleman's motivation is, the police are now investigating. But one thing that, that, that does seem clear is they didn't want any help. And at one point, the Iranian Red Cross went to the top of the monument themselves and threw him a rope, which he rejected. It was almost the very pinnacle of this enormous structure. When three metres from the, the top of it, he fell. Robert, thank you very much. You know what? We would love to have you back, and maybe if Mr Ahmadinejad can spend some money on telephone cabling instead of nuclear facilities, that would be marvellous. Um, it would be marvellous. It would also be extremely unexpected. The Iranian government has got um, reasons of their own for uh, wishing to keep the um, telecommunications technology here in the state that it's in. Thank you very much, Robert Tate in Tehran. You're welcome. Bye-bye. There you go. Iran, full of surprises. Thank you also to our studio guest, Lukman Ali. The show was produced by Francesca Panetta and Tim Maybe, and it was presented by me, Riaz Atbat. The music is by Aki Nawaz. Jazakallah for listening, and until next week, Walaikum Assalam. Guardian Unlimited.